Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. I am your host. My name is Ezra Klein. It isn't just a weird name for this show. And I am really stoked about today's conversation. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Grant Gordon today. He's a political scientist and a policymaker who specializes in really terrible conflicts happening around the world. He's also a fellow at the Stanford Center on International Conflict and Negotiations. Grant is an old friend of mine. He's someone I really admire, someone I've known a long time, someone whose work has always fascinated me really deeply. He works on some of the toughest humanitarian problems in the world. He's done a lot of work on development policy for the UN Department of Peacekeeping, the UN Office of Humanitarian Coordination, the UN Refugee Agency. His work has analyzed the impact of satellite technologies used to monitor and deter genocidal violence in Darfur. I mean, these are the kinds of problems that are the most taxing, the most difficult, and and truly the most important to solve. Grant was kind of, we took a lot of time, and, and I learned a tremendous amount about how he approaches this stuff, about why the governments that work with him in the in West Africa will work with someone from the West, about how do you approach these kinds of conflicts? What do you do when you get home from this kind of traumatic experience? How do you vent those emotions and, and reintegrate into society? It was an extraordinarily fun conversation for me. I think you'll, you'll hear that in this. Grant and I have a lot of fun talking. And I think it'll be an interesting conversation to you. If you're young, if you're in college, if you're thinking of doing this kind of work, I think hearing him on it is pretty inspiring. Certainly, it has a tendency to make me feel like a bad person not doing enough for the world. So maybe you'll be able to do better. But before we go to Grant Gordon, my usual begs for you. One is to share this podcast. Please put it on the Twitter, on the Facebook, on Ello. You can put it in Pokemon Go. Actually, you probably can't put it in Pokemon Go. But please share it. It's the way the podcast grows. It is much appreciated by me. Number two, listen to my other podcast, The Weeds. It is a policy podcast with myself, Matt Iglesias, Sarah Cliff. It's a lot of fun. It is very deep. It is very wonky. If you are listening to this, you will like it, I promise. And number three, continue to send me your feedback, your guest ideas, what you think, what you want. Uh, I really do choose a lot of the guests from those emails y'all send me. That is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. With that said, here's Grant Gordon. Do you do any of the uh, like the vocal exercises? I don't. Like, la, 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 la. No, I just speak unclearly most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> when I um, began doing TV a couple years ago, I was trying everything because like the thing I'm most insecure about in life is my voice. Uh, just and I think this is true for a lot of reporters, but particularly true for me because my voice is terrible. Where when you hear yourself 
on television or on tape. And as a reporter, you have to transcribe interviews on tape all the time. And so it was just like constantly being confronted with my worst demon. I think one of the worst life experiences <laughs> is walking into a place and hearing your voice left on the machine, like the message machine. Oh, it's, it's, it's devastating. terrifying. So uh, I watched a well, video. I don't know how you listen to your own podcast ever for that same reason. Do you listen to your own podcast ever? No, I would never listen to this <laughs> shit. Are you kidding me? I can't. Very I fun, cannot imagine a hell worse than being trapped in a room with my own podcast. One of the, one of the levels of Dante's Inferno is just listening to yourself on podcast. Yeah, over it's really and over bad. Again. So I read something that the problem is that for your whole life you're listening to the sound of your voice reverberate in your own skull. And that gives it a deep, rich timber. Uh-huh. But then when you hear it in the real world... You're like, it's tinny and ridiculous. Exactly. <laughs> and it's one more way in which the real world is a disappointment compared to my imagination of how I of how I come across. Well, it's like that. <laughs> it's like that natural reaction, right? When everybody's like, you know, get get your voice on, they always lower it because that's what they want that timber for. They're yep. like, I'm going to sound nice and sexy now. Yeah, but but I I feel that this podcast could only exist in the post this American life continuum. Where everybody's <laughs> like, oh, you know, it's great on the radio. Voices don't sound very good. <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but uh, my wedding got uh, audio mic'd. And so I have recordings of all of the speeches and my vows that Nina, that I give to Nina, that Nina gave to me. And I was went to listen to them one day. And like, I was both like crying because they were so moving and terrified at how I sounded for this exact same reason. I was yep. like, I'm never doing this again. My great regret for my wedding is I have no recording of it. You have no recording? We, video? we, we thought it, we had the opportunity. Yeah, I was like, what well, well, we do we need a video of it for? And now I am legitimately like a great mistake of my life we went back and looked at our wedding photos recently and it was like one of the funnest activities i've done yeah it's super like you got to take your time with that do you have books made from it no um, because you know there's digital photographs now but you can get these old things they're classic they're called books have you read super sad true love story the gary steingart book no so it's kind of dystopic futurist book and one of the running, it's not a gag, it's like one of the running commentaries on how bad the future is going to be is that the protagonist is a sort of nostalgic. He's like a hipster from the future. So he likes what things are like in 2004, basically. <laughs> um, so like but, all hipsters. Right. But he's got this young girlfriend and she is grossed out by his collection of physical books because like they smell bad and they have dust <laughs> on them. And, and I completely feel that way. You, you are grossed out by books. Do you I, hide them away in your house? I think that they are uh, an, an increasingly poor and inferior technology. <laughs> I'm looking for the day when Kindles become a bit nicer to look at. I, I don't really like the colors on them, but other than so that. I feel like the major problem with Kindles is when you have a book in your hand, you can kind of like visually place things in that book, right? So like you kind of know what happened on page 30 when you're kind of opening up, whereas in Kindle, you don't have a geography of it in a sense. And so like I don't, re- I feel like my memory of what happened is actually worse when I'm reading a Kindle book than when I actually have the book. I don't think that makes any sense at all. I think it makes total sense. So the the whole point of the Kindle is that you can highlight and make notes. And then as opposed to having to use this terrible piece of shit computer called your memory, you can use this amazing computer called Amazon Web Services. (laughs) And all the things that you thought were important that happened, you've saved. And you can also search. No, but it's like when you relive the experience of something, you relive and are more familiar with all of the memories in that shared experience or in that experience. And so like when you pick up a book and you're like thumbing through it really quickly, to me that invokes all of the memories of the book and actually what I learned was like I have a impossible possible time doing that in Kindle. And then when I like look at the like highlights of it, which I do a lot and are fantastic, I have no idea how they're so related. So I am recognizing 
in, in the way you recognize sometimes that your experience of the world is different from other people, <laughs> you have some, you are having some Proustian experience picking up physical books that I am not having. <laughs> like I do not. Like, like I'm sort of imagining you right now, like touching a book and like and in just the movies, like, it's, like, it's like the sort of zoom I in <laughs> and like you just like get this like sort of montage flash book of all the other times you spent reading this book. When I go home and at the end of the day, I just touch all my books, <laughs> <laughs> just touch them all. <laughs> yeah, no, Kindles have changed everything for me. I've been very excited to interview with you for, we've known each other a very long time. And I have always sort of wondered how you got involved in the like incredibly admirable, but as far as I can tell, like very soul crushing work <laughs> that you do, like how you went from like a kid in California to a college student in the Rwandan health ministry to like an adult hiding beneath cars during civil wars in Congo. I'd like to hear that story because I, I know you pretty damn well and I actually don't understand it. You know, I grew up in a family where all four of my grandparents were Holocaust survivors and, you know, they had... But uh, I didn't know this about you. Where, where were they? So three of my grandparents were Polish and one was Hungarian and three of them actually went to Siberia and were in the Siberian gulags because they were in eastern Poland and my grandfather, the Hungarian one, was in Dachau. And, Did they um, tell you stories about that experience? Um, you know, they were generally pretty private about it. So essentially, my father's mother emigrated to Israel, and my mother's mother emigrated to America, but they were best friends, and they were actually in the Siberian gulags together. So as a side note, the way that my parents met each other was when my father wanted to come to study in America for college and leave Israel, his mother called her childhood best friend and said, my son wants to go to America. Where should he go? And she's like, oh, send him to UCLA. That's where my daughter studies. <laughs> and so there was like a little transatlantic oh, I matchmaking. I didn't know any of this. And so, you know, I spent time. And the old, <laughs> the old world reaching into the new. I know. This this was like the old OK Cupid. Um, <laughs> I think this was the old J-date. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up, and you know, hearing stories about the Holocaust and, and having political violence and the aftermath of that just be very present in our lives. And as a result, there's always felt like I, I grew up with what was imbued with us, which was an ethical obligation to make sure this never happens again. And so that was very present. And it took different forms in my parents. So, you know, my dad immigrated from Israel to the U.S. after he was actually disillusioned with the Israeli state and their policy towards Palestinians. And so in our home, he kind of led a Palestinian-Israeli kind of group that would meet on Sundays and like kind of try to hug each other out. Mm -hmm. And so there was very much kind of like a feeling of like, we need to make peace. And then my mother actually worked in randomized control trials in the pharmaceutical industry. And the really kind of life-changing experience that she had that she brought home every day was in 1993. She was running a randomized control trial that assessed the impact of uh, insert in the eye called Vitricert that people with HIV, this was before antiretrovirals were out, would some of them would often go blind given some of uh, the demacular degeneration. And this was a insert that stopped them from going blind. Wow. And so all of the I remember all of the patients in her study that she was running died because this was still when HIV was just a killer. My uncle died of HIV of AIDS in 94. I didn't, yeah. I didn't and it was only that. later that I realized, only in the last couple of years when I like began looking into that period, that two years later and he might be alive today. Yeah. Like it's, no, it's, it's the most wild thing. Well, it's absolutely wild. And like the interesting part was the 
HIV AIDS political movement was so strong and so involved and became such profound advocates for themselves that they were involved in uh, on the all of the ethics board run, running randomized controlled trials for all of the drugs. They were the ones advocating, you know, to the U.S. government and to FDA, their involvement. And so my mother engaged with a bunch of these all of the time and would bring them to the house. And over the period of a few years, basically, she was able, you know, to work on this meaningful project that saved the sight of people who were then dying with AIDS. And the um, importance of generating and marshalling high quality evidence to see whether these interventions work was something that stuck with me, right? So there were, I think, have always been and there still always are both in kind of the humanitarian aid that I work in or solutions uh, that we think are solutions where we're like, we have to do this. We have to give everybody it all immediately. Whereas really what you need to do is take a step back and carefully assess whether it's actually working. And so kind of growing up in this family where there is the simultaneous desire to kind of like hug out our conflicts <laughs> as well as implement randomized control trials <laughs> to make sure those hugs worked was kind of what drove me into this. And then there was really like a, a key turning point. Do hugs work and experimental? <laughs> <laughs> the title on that article is going to be amazing. And then basically when I was uh, 17 and in high school, I ended up going to Columbia Summer School and kind of weaseling my way in to a JD level international law course um, on international human rights law, which was kind of where my interests were. And I remember reading Philip Gurevich's book, We Wish to Inform You That Tomorrow We Will Be Killed With Our Family, which is- uh, That book is- is an amazing book about the Rwandan genocide. And I remember reading this and I was like, there was a genocide in Rwanda? Why didn't anybody tell me? Like it was, it was my first exposure to it. And I was so struck, I think, even coming from a family of, you know, Jewish immigrants, that this happened again and that there was no intervention. I think like for the weeks after that, I pretty much went to everybody I know. I was like, did you know there was a genocide in Rwanda? <laughs> I, I think this is a, a really interesting thing. And, and I've wanted to explore this for a long time. But something I think is really profoundly different about American foreign policy politics right now than it was when I was just getting into politics 15 years ago, Yeah, is that one of the really dominant experiences that people had at that point was a feeling of having failed in yeah. Rwanda. Yeah. And I, I really think this is an, an integral part of what happened behind the Iraq war, that there was a sort of, this was not a good argument for the Iraq war, but there was a strain of liberal interventionism that was like, if we can save people, we should save people. Right. And it was just really, really, really powerful. I mean, this was the era of Samantha Power is a problem from hell. Mm -hmm. And just this idea that the great mistake America had made recently was that it had the power to stop something terrible from happening, and it didn't. And now I think politics is so different for, because of the dominant experience was the mistake of going into Iraq. But I, I really think like when people look at the U.S., they like the, the role of Rwanda and to some degree of, of yeah. the, the feeling of the successful intervention in, in Bosnia, mm -hmm. that shaped so much of the ideas about liberal interventionism. Like the success was something we had done and the failure was something we had not done and we had permitted a genocide to happen. We had said never again and then we let it happen again. And I think like there, I mean, it's interesting to see this kind of playing out again in the, the discussions around Syria too. No, it's absolutely fascinating. It's hard to underscore how the policymakers that were in power in that around 94 during the Rwanda genocide and in those years, like how much that the failure of non-intervention stuck with them, right? Yeah. And, you know, there's an interesting element to the Rwandan case in particular. And like, I am a liberal interventionist and like, and try to be thoughtful in it. But you know, there's an element about the Rwandan case that's particularly unique because 
of the military assessments at the time for what it would have taken to actually stop that genocide were so small. They were well, so machetes. minor. Right? This was a low-tech genocide that was extremely quick. They were killing at a rate faster than Nazi Germany was killing, <laughs> even in their camps, but with machetes over the period of 100 days, about 800,000 million people died, right? The severity of it was so intense. 800,000 to a million, you said? 800,000 to a million. And... It would have taken so little to stop that. What, what, right? and do, so, you, do you know what the estimates were? Like, what, so I don't remember what the estimates are off the top of my head, I, but it was on the order of maybe like 1,000 or 2,000 peacekeepers. Am I wrong to remember that around this time, maybe after Rwanda, that there was the beginnings of something similar in Sierra Leone and that Britain put in a fairly small force and... It had a real effect on it. You can tell me if I'm totally wrong about this. Uh, not totally wrong, no, but just a little wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so a few years later, uh, some of the West African wars broke out, Liberia, Sierra Leone. And um, what is thought to be considered one of the successful peacekeeping operations of the late 90s was the one that Britain led in Sierra Leone. It was far into the conflict. And so it, it was pretty tragic to that date. But like when people think about the models of peacekeeping operations that work, Sierra Leone is one of the ones that comes to mind. But going back to the Rwanda one, I think that one of the things that's really interesting about it is that there's a set of cases where the imagined intervention is actually quite small. So the import of intervening in Rwanda and in genocides is unparalleled. We have a responsibility to do that ethically and internationally, and that is never going to not be the case. But I think what's happened oftentimes for liberal interventionists is that the notion of what's needed is also grounded in that experience. It's grounded in that historical understanding. So a few thousand soldiers could have stopped a genocide, right? The ability to say that makes it really hard then to think about what do you need to do to stop a genocide in Syria now against the Yazidis, which is kind of one of the current findings of the you know UN panel that came out, right? And there's much less no, a civil war. Much less a civil war. And so I think, you know, there's I think there's two interesting hangovers from that kind of era. One is that we didn't do it and we need to, and two is we could have done it fairly easily, right? Like this remains hypothetical because we didn't, we don't know what would have happened, right? And I think like when you look at cases like Libya, where we have these kind of like light footprint interventions for humanitarian reasons that you think are not going to be very costly, they can often go terribly wrong, right? right? So like it's easy to imagine that what would have been done in Rwanda would have been easy. It's hard to actually know what would have happened. But right, like I think that there's kind of a sense that like we have to do things and that sometimes doing things can be really easy. And that's per- and it's particularly when you have to Well, do that, that seems like a thing that we oscillate between that after Rwanda and also after, uh, again, I think Bosnia was important here. Yeah. There was a sense that we can do this stuff on the cheap. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then that was a big thematic of the Iraq debate. I mean, people forget... But it was a big deal back then, like Eric Shinseki came out and I'm going to get the exact numbers wrong, but said like we might need, I think it was 400,000 or 500,000 troops over, you know, a longer period of time than the Bush administration's absurd six month estimate. Yeah. And uh, he was cut down. Yeah. And there had been a move in America to believe like, okay, like we can, we can do this stuff. We are so powerful that like we can intervene pretty cleanly. Mm -hmm. And then after Iraq, I think... The fear a lot of people I know in the foreign policy community have is that we've overlearned the lessons of difficulty. I'm not sure yeah. if we have or not, but definitely that is the backdrop to a lot of Syria. I mean, the Obama administration in particular is an administration that is incredibly focused on how interventions can go wrong. They have a tremendously capable, catastrophic imagination 
about all the ways in which going in can go wrong. And I think it's something where I do not know how to adjudicate this debate. Like I do not have the skills to do it. But a lot of the criticism from them, including on the le- uh, from, from folks who are more liberal interventionists on the left, comes from a belief, not that their, their values are off, but that they have become so afraid of the difficulties of intervention that they are actually rejecting options of where the costs can be limited compared to the, compared to the benefits. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And like, you know, I think we're in this moment right now where in the 90s, you saw the pendulum swing to one side around what we can and should do. And right now we're on the other end of that. And I think somewhere in the middle is probably the more pragmatic approach that we will hopefully land on. But there's a really big difference between an intervention that seeks to stop mass atrocities, genocidal acts, and an intervention that seeks to change a regime and mm-hmm. build a state. Yeah. And there's always got to be the key question about can you do one without the other, right? So when you look at the Libya intervention, I think the proponents of the fact that like that was that was good and the things ended bad was not because we went in there and stopped an impending massacre in Benghazi or in um Gazier, but rather because we then moved to a model where we were actually going to try to change the regime. You can think about the, the catastrophe that Libya has become is in part due to that second part. And you can think about alternative models, alternative strategies and approaches where you actually just have intervened in a humanitarian way without having done that. And I think that's what you have to be able to parse out. And then there's cases like Syria where if you're thinking about going in and trying to provide humanitarian protections, like One, it's not always boots on the ground regime change, right? There's a whole set of other humanitarian strategies that you can draw on that have pros and cons that may provide people with more protection and help mitigate the impact of conflict. But you have to be really clear about what your intentions are. And I think the real hangover right now is kind of humanitarian intervention coupled with regime change and state building. So back to Colombia. Back to Colombia. <laughs> <laughs> You're reading Philip Gorovich's book. Oh, yes. That was where I was in my life at that point. So I was reading Philip Gorovich's book, and I was like, oh, my God, there was a genocide in Rwanda, and I was drawn immediately to it. And so in parallel, when I went to college uh, in Chicago, I uh, started working on HIV AIDS activism in part kind of because of the story that I told around my mother, having worked in that field for a little bit. And became really interested in health policy and interested simultaneously in mass atrocities and genocide prevention. Boy, you must have been a real fun guy. (laughs) (laughs) I could tell stories at parties. (laughs) I'm I'm tired of talking about HIV AIDS. Can you talk about anything else? Well, yes, actually. (laughs) Would you like to hear about mass atrocities? There were definitely many years in my college experience where like, I was possibly the most annoying person to talk to because like, I also, right, like for all college students out there and all youth who are getting into this, right, you feel it so intensely, yeah. right? You feel the injustice in the world, so, right? Should. Like, and uh, yeah, and absolutely. And so that was what motivated there, there's me. There's this amazing Louis C.K. riff where he talks about <laughs> walking in New York with his daughter and they just see like a homeless man who's just like in the worst yeah. possible shape, just in terrible shape. And his daughter says like, dad, like that... That man needs what help. What happened? Like, we need to help this person. What's going on? Should, should we help him? And I says, no, that guy's fine. <laughs> and the thing that is like, that guy was the least fine human being in the world. They're just like, she could feel not just like, I cannot anyway. Like you just like, you become an adult and you get way better at blocking out this kind of pain. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you, and for, you know, people who are kind of in this in the long term, I think that there is a 
a need to basically engage in your own emotional management and self-care. And a lot of that has to do with being able to shut it off. I really want to, I want to talk about that part with you. Like I really want to put a pin in that. And I also really need to stop interrupting before (laughs) we get to your first internship. I'm at age 19. (laughs) And so I was interested in Rwanda and I was interested in this HIV AIDS policy. And so what I did actually was I emailed the Rwandan Minister of Health and I was like, hey, my name's Grant. How do you, this is like a sort of bold move. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. So, yeah. Like what, you're sitting up at midnight in your dorm or something and you're looking on the internet for the, like the Rwandan Health Minister's email is on the internet? I, at that time, was really convinced that I wanted to do an internship or work in these areas and work in it with an institution did this and like you know there's there's a few interesting points around this one is like i think it's generally great to be precocious i emailed the rwandan minister of health and i was like hey i'd like to hang out and he emailed me back did you email any others or was it just the rwandan health minister so i ended up emailing a few other african ministers of health i was actually really fortunate that the rwandan one got back to me because i was like yes it was it was the (laughs) one that i wanted to say yes but there's, you know, there's another interesting component that happens in these places. And Rwanda was a very different time. This was about uh, 10 years ago now than it is today, which is important to note. And so the institutions were a lot more porous and they were a lot more accessible. One of the reasons that I have been able to work at the Rwandan Ministry of Health in bed with the national, the Congolese national military is because a lot of the leadership, because these are porous institutions, are very accessible. And so the... Ability for me to, yes, I basically found the Rwandan Ministers of Health email. Can, can I ask a question about the culture of this, though? Yeah. Granted, they may be accessible. But being accessible is not the same thing as being receptive. And you can imagine, I mean, we just talked about the history of America that, and Rwanda. Yeah. yeah. Right? And you, I could imagine the Rwandan Minister of Health getting an email from some, like, white kid at the U of Chicago He's being like, I'd like to come there for an internship and just be like, fuck off. <laughs> or the or the so Congolese is, National I mean, Army. Like, so why, this why is, do this, they want to work with you? Like, so what? this was the exact yeah. point that I was going to get to, which is... No, and I'm I was, sorry. <laughs> stop interrupting me. <laughs> These folks oftentimes have an incentive to bring you on. So what I realized very quickly, like, listen, I came to this experience with, like, probably not as much humility as I needed, but I learned very quickly that, like, I was the only white intern in that office. And what that did for the HIV AIDS task force office was it signaled to external donors that they were a place of stability. Oh, that's right? so that, interesting. Like, they, my first and second week, and like I was a kid and I knew nothing, right? Like, and you know, I think a lot of my colleagues saw me arrive and they're like, uh-oh, we got to work with this guy. <laughs> they took me to these amazingly high-level meetings that I did not have the capacity or fluency or understanding to be in. And it became really clear that, like, it was of utility for me to be there as a signal that they were interested, that they were a stable government, that they could attract these types of interns and have this time of kind of structural programming that would facilitate this, right? And so I was of deep utility to them, right? So, like, now in Rwanda's history, it's like a much much stronger, more authoritarian regime that's kind of the institutions are stronger. I think it would be very hard to do this. I presume the Rwandan health minister is not going to respond to anybody who emails after hearing this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But countries of kind of similar institutional fragility. This podcast is huge in the Rwandan health ministry. (laughs) Of uh, similar institutional fragility there are are accessible in this weird way. So I I want to make really explicit what you just said because I am absolutely fascinated by it. What you're saying is that there is a kind of 
elite level signaling that you were able to provide. And the elite level signaling was this, that one thing outside donors feel comforted by is respect for people like them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Is respect for people with credentials they recognize and approaches they recognize. And that if the Rwandan health ministry is interested in attracting and working with you, Chicago prodigies or whatever, that that is evidence that culturally the Rwandan health ministry is becoming an institution that's going to use their money well, that's going to take their advice, it's going to value approaches and data and models that that they believe in. Yeah, absolutely. That's right? really and interesting. And this is a structure that you see in a lot of places. And for essentially white people or expatriates who go and work in Africa, they're often leveraged in this way, right? And like they're often thought of as targeted or believed to be just resources, right? They are a resource to do this. It's a very different logic when you're in different environments. So I spent a lot of time working with uh, members of the Congolese military over the past two years, and they gave me access in part because they thought if I worked with them, I would basically be able to advocate on their behalf, which would increase donor funding and security assistance. And there's a, it's, it's a similar but kind of like different logic mm-hmm. than what's going on in the Rwandan health ministry, where they are basically thoughtfully and strategically signaling to donors this way. But there are these logics at play in these areas, which is like, one is it's it makes the kind of ethical responsibility of engaging in these areas all the more necessary because it's so easy to access them and to raise expectations and to, you know, get really amazing, have really amazing engagements that would never happen elsewhere. You know what I mean? I would never have been able to, you know, work at the CDC at that age with the skill setup that I had. So what was true at the Rwandan Health Ministry? What did you what did you leave that experience believing that you didn't come in believing? Oh, that's a great question. I know. Thank you. <laughs> There were a lot of really talented medical professionals in my bureau who needed to be spending their time on crafting effective HIV AIDS policies for their country. And what they oftentimes spent their energy doing was coordinating and managing external funding for this type of programming. Because at that time, basically, like I was kind of unaware of the challenges of the donor landscape and the NGO landscape and everybody kind of coming in with the desire to help Rwandans, much like I did, right? This is not kind of a a charge on their motivations, but the HIV AIDS task force was oftentimes have to spend their time coordinating amazingly challenging organizations that they didn't have authority over or control over who, you know, wanted to wanted to do this. But, you know, it's kind of like it's kind of akin to, you know, bringing kind of the smartest medical professionals that the country had and having them kind of just essentially manage, you know, other bureaucracies. I left really aware of the challenges that state institutions that have large external funding face in what they actually have to do rather than the jobs that they would like to do. And this is by no means a hit rate. Like a lot of the funding that was coming in through donors, through NGOs was fantastic and drastically changed the quality of lives of Rwandans. But it made operating as a state agency very difficult for the actual bureaucrats and the professionals who needed to do so. So then what comes next? You go back to U of Chicago. So I left Rwanda and was like, 
that's it. I left it and basically was like, I scratched the surface. I didn't understand anything. Can I ask you one, I, one, one question? And, uh-huh. and what did being in that space make you think about your own whiteness? So, you know, right, I come in, I'm being strategically used by the kind of host institution to signal credibility. I mean, it, it made me understand my relative power and basically kind of the levels of access and the projects and work that I could do in a way that was deeply uncomfortable and in a way that's made me try to essentially check kind of the way that I, what does it mean to ethically engage these areas? What does it mean to kind of, you know, foolishly come in as a, you know, 20 year old and work in a state institution in a post-genocidal landscape? So one of the things I left with was actually kind of a real dedication to this area in particular. So over the past 10 years, I have been going back to the Great Lakes. And one of the reasons that happened was I left and I felt like to understand this area and to actually make it an impact in an ethical way, you need to understand what's going on. So I went and I'd spoken French by that time, but I went and learned Swahili and I improved my Kenya Rwandan and I spent time in Burundi and then the Democratic Republic of Congo and over time, I've come back and you see the same people, right? The same people yeah. are in power, the same people in leadership, and you cultivate a credibility that you're no longer just kind of a thoughtless white person who doesn't understand what's going on, but that you're deeply invested in understanding the politics, the economy, the culture. And it starts to mean something really different to operate in those areas. And so I think that that's really important, right? Like understanding these places is one of the things that I think coming to it with humility is one of the things that can kind of mitigate the differential power dynamics of coming in as a white person. But there's also like another interesting element. Like this was particularly relevant in Rwanda, right? So kind of going back to why I got into these areas, I remember, you know, talking with my colleagues and most of them were genocide survivors or had, you know, family members who were killed in the genocide. I told them, you know, my father's Israeli, my grandparents were all Holocaust survivors. And I remember leaving the office one day and my colleague was, I was walking out with my colleague and um, she was like, oh, come meet my husband. He's picking me up in the car. And I was like, oh, great. I'd love to meet him. And we went to the car window and she was like, hi, this is great. Now he's our intern. He's also our brother in genocide. And I was so shocked. I like huh. didn't know what to make of it. Right. But that the way that she was identifying with me was over kind of a shared history of victimization. That w- that ended up being just as important to those individuals, and there's a whole political narrative for why that's the case there, but that that actually ended up being the identity that like I wore on my sleeve more often in their eyes. You kind of operate in these areas and you start to see what the different kind of signals and um, markers are, right? Like now when I go you know back to these areas and I'm able to kind of speak in the local language, people are like, oh, you must... You must spend time here. You mm-hmm. must know things, right? Like, you're like, you must, like, you care about understanding us. You may not know things, but... You, you can answer this question, the specific or the general, right? The specific of, like, this time that you then left Rwanda and came back to Chicago, or the general of, like, you go back and forth all the time. But what is that transition like? Yeah, so I've been going to primarily the Great Lakes. I spent some time in Sierra Leone and Liberia living there and working there. Have um, dipped my toes in the water in kind of Somalia and Haiti, and there's one thing that just always gets me whenever I come back from these areas. Like as soon as I land and kind of walking around cities, water fountains. <laughs> like, well, like the fact that there is clean, free water as a public good that anybody can access anywhere is to me the starkest difference in these places. Right? Like it is the emblem of. Good governance. It's the emblem of state institutions. It's the emblem of economic wealth to me, right? Like, and there's a few things that, that hit me like that. But you know, the transitions are really 
tough. And I think the the hard component of it is coming back and seeing the depth of injustice in the world and the depth of kind of difference. Like when I came back from Somalia, to went from Somalia to San Francisco, right? Like there probably no, there are no two more different places in the world, <laughs> like literally than Somalia and San Francisco. <laughs> and in it, you know, for me, right, like the thing that it's always done is it has made me feel so much more obligated to do this work has made me not understand why everybody else isn't doing this work. <laughs> there are problems out there and they're complex and they're hard, but like a dedication to solving them is key and crucial. And does, like, does it create a sense of resentment may not be the right word, but you come back from this and you see people just living their lives and you come back and like, you know, you're talking to your friend and they're explaining like how... I don't know if you have friends in management consulting, but, you know, like how um, is it hard to hear that stuff? Like how, how do you how do you get back into like being a person who can engage with other people's problems when like the problems you were just engaging with are yeah. doing life and death? I mean, on Twitter, this is always called like first world problems. Hashtag first but world like problems. you come back and people in the first world have first world problems. You know, like it's <laughs> like your car does break yes. down like it does happen. Um, and how do you. Yeah, 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 no. Because, like, I've told you some first world problems over the years, and you're not, like, a huge asshole about it to me. <laughs> <laughs> Little do you know when I go just home. Just writing in your diary. Day, my diary, first world problems, other people's first world problems. Yeah, like, um, you know, one thing, one thing that I always remember is, like, this is not my life. I yeah. am not, like, leading this. Like, I am somebody who gets to parachute in, work on these problems, and I get, I witness them. Right? Yeah. Like, I do, and, like, I bring a deep humility and, like, remember that that is the case, that this is happening to other folks. But, like... When I, when I first came back from Rwanda, I actually think it was a huge asshole. People tell me their first world problems. I'm like, but do you know that there are people dying with AIDS in Rwanda? Right. right? Like I did that for actually a very long time. And I learned that I lost a lot of friends that way. <laughs> no, it, was, it wasn't that. But I think, you know, what I kind of evolved into and came to is, you know, deep understanding that like I am dedicated to changing this and this is not everybody's path. And what is actually meaningful is to, with people in the first world and people in everywhere else in the world, is to kind of engage them on their own terms, understand what problems they are having, keep them in check a little bit, right? So when I get some like real bad first world problems, yeah. right? Like this is why people say hashtag first world problems. There's like somewhat of a self-awareness of this. But I think it's really important to like understand every individual's issue and treat that with respect, and, you know, I spent a lot of my time really trying to, like, push people towards understanding this, understanding these worlds, right? Like, and I think part of this is there's a cognitive dissonance between kind of treating everybody with respect and kind of, you know, shaming people all the time that I think is kind of hard to deal with. And two, there's kind of like a second, like, empirical reality, which is my experience reality, which is if you want people to use their time better, right, to donate, to think about these issues, to engage politically on them, Cutting them down and what's relevant in their lives is never the strategy that works. Right. And like that's that's been my experience. Like I'm sure there's some great individual naming and shaming that has like motivated people to do fantastic work. And these are just like with individuals and friends. And I like, you know, I take that to heart and it's important. So you make a change in the years after this. You're at the Rwandan Health Ministry, you're in a post-genocidal landscape, but you're working on public health. And your career moves at some point to focus much more on crisis response in war, sometimes a natural disaster. What does that change? Like as you as you sharpen what you want to do in this space, what 
leads you to that place? And, and I guess what is it that makes you think you'll be good at that? You know, I left the one in health position. was like, I need to understand this place. I need to continue to work here to provide meaningful services or to meaningfully shape humanitarian policies in these areas. You need to understand the political economy of these places, the institutions, all of that. And so I doubled down on engaging in these areas. And crisis response, right, like has always been what has kind of triggered me, right? It has been always what like I'm going to stand up and dedicate my life to solving, right? And mm -hmm. being a participant in. And a lot of the early kind of health work, particularly around HIV AIDS, felt very urgent. Like a lot of this was about a crisis where people in Africa, people in poor countries could not get pharmaceuticals that would save their lives. And they were dying at high rates because of this. Like that was a urgent life-threatening yeah. crisis. And so I kind of continued to work in those these areas and more focused on kind of political violence. And then I spent time kind of with the UN Refugee Agency and then the Department of Peacekeeping Operations in various capacities, but always with the goal of mitigating the impact of conflict. And to do that, largely then understanding the causes of conflict. I remember being working at the UN Refugee Agency in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and um, I was, you know, at that time actually tasked with evaluating the impact of refugee reintegration programs. So during the war, refugees fled to other countries, left for many years, would come back and their homes were taken by other people. Their lands had been inhabited by either people who stuck around or different displaced individuals. And all of a sudden you had this issue of returning refugees who, you know, would say, this is my land, and you'd have to resolve that dispute somehow. And so I was assessing the impact of those programs, and those programs were so salient. And um, I remember leaving that experience thinking, I'm not sure what actually happened there. The tools that I have are not sufficient to get at the underlying truth, and I do believe there's an underlying truth of what the effects of the things what we're doing are. And finding that be, be is... Be specific about that. When you, you did that work, what was it that you thought you weren't able to disentangle? In retrospect, I wasn't able to, with confidence, say this was the effect of this program. That our program was either doing having good impacts, no impacts, or bad impacts. I had some, I had some kind of thoughts and some kind of like, you know, we, we marshaled all the evidence we could marshal to try to see what was going on. But I left that thinking that like... This is very imprecise. The work that I had been doing was very imprecise. It was, you know, I did not have the tools. I did not have the skills. This was a, this was a me thing. This was not yeah. the UN. This was not the programmers. They were doing great. You know, they were doing their work. And having grown up in a house where randomized controlled trials were, what, what was the tool to assess the impact of the things that we think are the most important in the world, right? How we make ourselves healthy. That it was astounding to me that we wouldn't use those same tools to assess what programs that I thought were the highest stakes, mm -hmm. right? Humanitarian interventions, economic development programs, all of this. To do this well, we need to understand what we're doing. And there's a set of tools out there that exist. And this was also at a time where kind of randomized control trials were becoming increasingly popular in the use in social sciences and economics. And that's actually what ended up drawing me to do a PhD, was that I thought that there was an underlying truth that these methods could get you. And that the content of the work we were doing was so important that it demanded the integrity of this approach. And now, years later, I'm like, oh, those approaches aren't that fantastic. <laughs> After once you're in it, then you're like, oh, I see the limitations so clearly. Are they of better course. though? I think randomized control trials are like appropriate for like a set of issues, and like they absolutely should be used. And 
garnering that type of evidence is crucial and you have to do it. I think it's, I think there's, I mean, I have a bunch of thoughts on this. I think the use of them and the type of evidence they produce are biased towards looking at a specific set of issues. And, like more, per- ask and like more particular, right? Like oftentimes what you can do with randomized controlled trials is assess a low cost intervention that takes a short period of time that has a measurable outcome, right? And you can do that very well, right? So there's great studies on what it's like to give cash transfers, right? You give a cash transfer to somebody and very shortly within a year or two, you can see the measurable impact on their household income, on kind of where they're investing their money. Those are great small things. I think like an example that I think about from time to time, right, is if we were using randomized controlled trials and like kind of these standards of evidence, like what would we think about kind of historical moments that we think are so important, right? So if you were like a donor who is like demanding randomized control trials in a sense during like the civil rights movement <laughs> in the 1960s and like, you know, you kind of helped out and give them funding in the first year, like what would what would your like donor report be at the right. end of that? Oh, my God, our movement hasn't changed the politics and there's increased violence against members of the community. Uh-huh. And like this is just all terrible. We have to stop <laughs> funding this, right? That would make so much sense. And like with, you know, 2020 hindsight – Nobody would ever say, don't support the civil rights movement in America. And so, you know, I think kind of randomized controlled trials and a set of these things are biased towards things where changes are are short, generally either positive or negative, but like very easily quantifiable. And that oftentimes don't deal with broader questions of changing institutions, that are really hard to do on those timelines with these measurable Let me approaches. ask you a question about how you gather the evidence when you do this work. I find it so difficult to take this into my first world problem land for a while. Like, I'm not getting my upstairs shower fixed for months. Because, <laughs> like, the idea of doing that is too logistically daunting to me. <laughs> I have spoken to you while you were under a car in the Congo with people shooting. <laughs> and I would like to understand better than I do... How do you gather evidence in these spaces, right? Because for for the randomized control trial to work, you need people to cooperate with you. You can't just do it. You need to go and get the Congolese military to give you information, to take your surveys. You need to go and have people, like, respond to you. You come in, you're an outsider. I mean, and, and these are often places where it's hard to find people, where there can be violence on the ground. What are the tactics or approaches you've learned to like gather evidence successfully in spaces where it would seem to me that gathering good evidence would be very difficult. I remember coming back from my work in the Congo and submitting my receipts to the donors for how I spent my money, which had been funded, and about uh, $3,000 in receipts were on beers. And the donor <laughs> came back to me, they're like, we do not fund liquor consumption. <laughs> and I was like, this is how you get things done in the Democratic <laughs> Republic of Congo. You sit with people and you have beers. And it gets this thing, right? A lot of these places are... Areas that you operate where there are no kind of institutional barriers towards accessing individuals oftentimes. And what it is really about is cultivating relationships with them and knowing how to navigate these institutions. So, like, I think an inordinate amount of my time has been spent waiting (laughs) in (laughs) large state institutions to have a meeting with somebody who anywhere else in the world I would never even get to the chance to wait in that room for, right? So like, you know, work that I did in Sierra Leone on um, on access to justice, 
I was able to spend a substantial amount of time with the Inspector General of the Sierra Leonean Federal Police Force because he was somebody who you could wait to have a meeting with and then have a meeting with. What it takes in these areas is kind of uh, deep patience and understanding of how how to access these folks, but they're accessible, right? And this is this is the weird thing. The flip side, I can't imagine ever doing the work that I've done in these areas in the United States or in That's Europe. That just sounds like I couldn't even wrap my head around how to do that. If, if you're an <laughs> ordinary Sierra Leonean student, can you get that meeting with the Sierra Leonean chief of police? No, this goes back to my whiteness. Yeah. This absolutely goes back to my whiteness. This absolutely goes back to being associated with resources, to being potentially leveraged in a way. So interesting. Um, and this is why doing ethical work in these areas is really hard. And you always have to be conscious of the fact that, like, I can take the inspector general. I can take an, an hour with the inspector general. And that's an hour that he's not using to work on cultivating a professional police force in Sierra Leone. Right. right? Like, you have to be aware of that. So I try not to take too many people's meetings and waste too many people's times. But there's another there's another part which is like, then how do you actually do this once you're on the ground? It's like pretty interesting, which is you go and chat with folks. When I was in working on a project in Liberia, we were doing kind of a survey in two of the in two of the provinces. And what I was tasked with doing essentially was I had a big bundle of money and I had to hire and then train 25 Liberian enumerators. And um, enumerators, Sorry. enumerators yes. are really enumerator? interesting. <laughs> so enumerators are individuals who are basically trained in surveying skills who will then go implement kind of a closed form survey. So it's like, you know, if somebody ever calls you on the phone and asks you questions, this is, it's like that exact, it's that kind of person, but they are trained in survey skills and are often implementing these doing kind of one-on-one -on -one household interviews for many hours or observation in similar ways. And like the kind of wild thing right now, right, is there's been this burgeoning field of like randomized controlled trials and survey work that's come out of sub-Saharan Africa, which I'm familiar with and I'm sure other areas. And like, you know, you go into a bar now in like one of these places and you meet somebody and you're like, what do you do? And they're like, I'm an enumerator. <laughs> right? like, there's kind of like this weird burgeoning middle class. When you think about it historically, they're not super dissimilar from like colonial translators. Right. So like you kind oh, of yeah. have That's like an external people coming in, needing to understand what's going on, collect data on what's well, going on. We have on. this in journalism, too. Like uh, a lot of the journalists I know who do more foreign reporting tend to refer to it as fixers. Yeah. Somebody who's your guide there, somebody who is yeah. you know, out there translating, but also pulling people together for you. Sometimes those people are working on your behalf. I mean, you yeah. end up with like a little, yeah. a little fleet. Exactly. And so, so it was in Liberia, we trained 25 enumerators who then basically we bought 14 motorcycles, got on a set of motorcycles and drove around the country to sites that were selected using a really complex sampling strategy that was in line with the kind of research approach. And we would get to a village and we would, the enumerators would do long interviews with individuals. And it's actually been really interesting, right? Like going back to kind of the whiteness, like I would never imagine doing some of these interviews myself, like all the time, in part because particularly with like a, people who aren't necessarily elites, they would feel incredibly uncomfortable and are, I think, less likely to be forthcoming. And so one of the reasons that like, you use local enumerators is because you think that's going to actually elicit the truthful responses that we've, you need on survey work. We have a mutual friend, Bilal Siddiqui, at the World Bank, who just did a study, right, showing that when you have 
white researchers running studies in, I think it was in Africa. It was in Sierra Leone. It, yeah. it changes mm-hmm. the results, right? It changes the results. So he played a behavioral game where basically you have a white person administering it or kind of a local African administering it. And the behavioral game essentially kind of, if I remember correctly, assesses kind of like how giving people are. And uh, when a white person is watching, there's like a 40% increase. I mean, the magnitude of the change of effect of the presence of a white person is profound. One thing that makes you do, think about it is like, wow, like, you know, I'm really changing these dynamics. The other thing that makes you think about it is like, I wonder if all of the research we've done where white <laughs> people are around is really accurate or not. <laughs> it's like both educational and totally horrifying. Yeah. So, so I want to get into some of the ideas that you have become focused on in your work. In particular, one that I've read in, in, in some of your papers, I'd like you to talk about the guardianship dilemma a little bit. Because when I read about this, like, it was one of these ideas that, like, immediately changed my thinking <laughs> on how state institutions work. And it was totally obvious but that I had never given any consideration to. Yeah, absolutely. So the guardianship dilemma is the dilemma that all regimes face everywhere in the world. As a state, you need to build an army strong enough to ward off external threats. But once you actually build an army strong enough to ward off external threats, you're also building an army strong enough to depose you. <laughs> and so it's a really challenging dilemma to overcome, right? And so I was particularly interested in this, you know, for, I think for two or three sets of reasons. One is when you look at the academic literature out there right now, what's really clear is that countries that are wealthy, secure, and safe are often so because they have strong state institutions, right? So building these types of institutions is going to be crucial to the broader development project and the broader state building project. And if you can't overcome this dilemma, you're not going to have a military institution, which is, you know, tasked with the core, core responsibility of establishing a legitimate monopoly on violence. If you're not going to be able to do that, you're not going to be able to kind of go down that path. There's a lot of evidence that kind of just that this is that problem. So I think between uh, like 1945 and 2006, about 60% of the kind of extra constitutional changes that are leadership changes that happen in kind of semi-autocratic regimes are from coups that are come from the military. So it's also a deep source of instability. What are, what are other kinds of extra constitutional changes? That's like sort of Arab Spring style stuff? Or? External interventions. Uh, oh, which external interventions. Um, yeah, and kind of large External movements. interventions is quite a word. <laughs> external <laughs> <Or term>. interventions. <laughs> There's a set of them. But, you know, a large majority of them come from kind of coups from the military. You see in like a lot of the states that I've worked in, they have really weak militaries. The third reason that I became interested in this, particularly the Democratic Republic of Congo, was, you know, you kind of mentioned that like in 2008, I had called you when I was under the car when a rebel group was essentially trying to take the city and we were being evacuated. Why why Uh, are you making calls? I didn't have anything else to do. I was was going to sit under that car and just listen. (laughs) We were at an evac point. We were waiting to be evacuated, which ended up happening 36 hours later. And And people were just like under the cars to stay safe like with... Um, Yeah, a lot of people were not under the cars. What ended up happening was this was not the best evacuation point selection because it was right next to the military barracks, which the rebel group was going to take. And so there was just a ton of kind of artillery. There was deep concern that uh, something would be lobbed over and that a safer place to be would be kind of under a car, mm-hmm. um, which in retrospect makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> we were just a bunch of fearful people. But one of the things that I saw that I remember kind of coming out of the UN complex and going to the evacuation point, one of the things that really struck me during this was the 
I witnessed members of the national military gunning down civilians who were on motorcycles so that they could take their motorcycles and flee from the city. Oh, and um, and the kind of intensity of seeing the only state institution that may protect you, right? The national army, which is fused with the mandate and the authority and to step up and do this, do this to their own citizens, made me think, right, like, you have to understand these institutions to understand why there's violence. You have to get military institutions and how they work. And you, to do that, you have to understand this guardianship dilemma. And so kind of over the course of two years, I spent a lot of time talking with folks in the uh, Congolese military and hired a bunch of enumerators to talk with folks in the Congolese military and to try to understand how they overcome it. And one of the things that was you know, particularly surprising to me was the fact that so many soldiers went unpaid. And the reason that this was surprising to me was because you would think if you were the regime elite and you're afraid of being overthrown, that the last thing you want to do is not pay your soldiers because that's going to generate the very grievances that are going to incentivize them to overthrow you. Mm -hmm. And so I spent time trying to understand what the logic of all of this was. And the kind of results of the study showed that essentially what the regime was doing to overcome this guardianship dilemma, the way that they thought about this was that they needed to figure out who is going to be loyal to them. And that if they could figure out who is going to be loyal to them, they weren't necessarily going to need to be afraid of being overthrown. And I remember really uh, accurately sitting in this meeting with one of the kind of Congolese military leadership folks, and I was asking him, why don't you pay people given this? And he like looked at me and he just said, we'll see who's left kind of suggesting that not paying them was the way to identify who was loyal. And so when you actually look at the data and you assess the interviews, what you see happening is that the regime elites are withholding money from units on the assumption that the people who aren't willing to weather the hard times that aren't really with them are going to defect and take off and that they're going to be left with the loyal folks right. that are going to kind of build the army that they need. This is kind of totally crazy because you tend to think if you want really good people, you kind of pay them more. Right. Right? You don't pay them less. But I mean, isn't the, this sounds to me like a way in which the incentives of weak states can be really screwy, right? Like it may be that you want to pay people better, but you have this other countervailing incentive. And so, I mean, one of the things I think is really important is thinking about why people's decision making is rational. Yeah. And it's often not rational to build the best institutions you possibly can. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is like this exact case. It's not necessarily rational to withhold wages if you are not an insulated military. So what ends up happening when they withhold wages is that soldiers become incredibly violent, right? So non-payments are correlated with high levels of torture, abuse, even sexual violence. Against civilians. Against civilians. Yeah. But the Congolese military has insulated this because it's not a you know democratic regime um, and this is not an accountable military institution. And so it may be very rational for them to identify soldiers who are loyal but violent because they're insulated. And it's really an understanding those kind of like structural logics that you have to think through this. Right. I mean, I think, you know, one of the really interesting and kind of implications is what this means for security systems. Right. The United States, I think over the past 15 years, has spent on the order of $225 billion trying to professionalize and build armies. Right, That is a massive amount that kind of outweighs our development portfolio by oodles. Uh, oodles being the technical term. <laughs> and, you know, I think the thing you take away from the Congolese army, right, is that 
a lot of times, one of the ways you can provide security assistance is by helping them pay wages to their soldiers. And like what I would suggest is that like when you actually understand why regime elites are withholding payments, that that suggests that if you give them more money without also solving their problem of like how to identify who's loyal, that money is not going to be useful to them. That's not going to help them solve the core institutional question that they need to solve. And so when you're doing security assistance or you're kind of, you know, thinking about just foreign aid and foreign interventions more broadly and kind of changing institutions, you have to understand these internal incentives and these internal structural dynamics to it all craft effective policy. So when you come back from maybe not a project like that, but the one we were talking about in the Congo a couple minutes ago where you're evac'd. I mean, you talked a bit ago about what kinds of self-care you need to integrate in and out of these situations. What do you do? Run. <laughs> no, I, so I uh, do triathlons, um, actually. And, uh, you know, I was like talking with somebody recently. And they're like, oh, so you have done a PhD, you do triathlons, and you spend long extended periods of time in really challenging places. You just like challenging, tough, endurance-oriented things. And that that's the part that's like the most kind of relieving. It's interesting. There's deeper conversations right now within the humanitarian... I would like to deal with my stress at Productively. <laughs> There's deeper conversations right now within the humanitarian sector, the development sector around kind of what self-care looks like, right? Like actually how do you institutionalize this? How do you make sure that there are standards such that your staff is who are exposed to secondary trauma, exposed to high levels of secondary trauma, don't themselves become overly traumatized, which itself is horrible and often leads to burnout. And so, you know, like one of the things that I have like made sure to do is be really self-aware of how to process and integrate some of the things you see. You know, I've also, I've had a lot of folks and a lot of friends and a lot of brilliant colleagues who've made amazing contributions leave the field because it was just too much and it was too hard. And, you know, it's not for everybody and kind of any contribution that I think people can make is fantastic, right? Like these are important issues. Getting thoughtful, dedicated people is key. You have to take the time to take care of yourself, and that means different things for different people. And I think the important thing is figuring out what that means. I think the thing for me has kind of been the that makes me deal with this more has actually been the opposite of what I think you would imagine, which is I am comforted by the fact by the fact that I'm dedicated to this and I'm going to keep going back and that these are the issues I'm going to keep working on and that I'm dedicated to advancing thoughtful humanitarian policy and thoughtful foreign policy and thoughtful interventions. And it's in that kind of obligation and that dedication that I actually am rejuvenated mm -hmm. in a way that I'm able to process it. To be honest, like I couldn't imagine doing the work I do and then just being like, and now I'm done, right? And like leaving it behind, right? Like it's a continued engagement that I find soothing. And like, that's not, again, it's not for everybody. And it doesn't do that day-to-day, -day, help you with that day-to-day -day processing. Yeah. But over the long term, that is for me what sustains me. And it's interesting because like for all the people who I talk about, about wanting to enter the humanitarian sector, you know, there's like some you know deep challenges and deep fears for absolutely well-grounded reason. These are hard areas where you're exposed to trauma, where you see really horrible things in the world. And I've like always said, this is the most rewarding thing you will ever do. <laughs> like it is indeed hard, but the actual engagement in this work is what's going to motivate you to be able to continue doing it. And so, you know, I think it's important to keep that. So if mind. you're a, if you're a college student listening to this and you're incredibly inspired by the words of Grant Gordon, what would you advise them to do? If you want to begin working on these issues, how do people even think about making that jump? 
just email the Rwandan health minister again. <laughs> I'm sure, like, I hope he does not. I'm not sure who he is right now or she is right now. Like, get a ton of emails <laughs> from college students all over. But you know, do I, I think a few things are important. One is the amazing thing about the sector is most folks are absolutely kind and want more people to be working. Right? Like, the humanitarian sector is underfunded, probably under resourced, and reach out. First, like reach out to organizations. Go out there, identify the organizations that you think are doing work that resonate with your values, and identify people who work at them and ask them for a coffee. The second thing is like do your homework. Learn about these places. There's a kind of like a large backlash, often justifiably so, against kind of like unthoughtful exploitation tourism in these places where you go and you take photos with kind of small African children for a summer and you talk about the thing you did and and come back. And, you know, there's a lot of other things to say about that. But I think the important part is there's a lot of meaningful, thoughtful ways to engage in these spaces. And it's important to come at this and think through that and get advice from other folks who've worked in the industry about what the thoughtful things are, right? There's a million organizations out there that are probably not doing meaningful work, and there's just as many doing meaningful work. Kind of identify those and work with them. And third, do your homework on bringing a skill set to the table. It's actually like by the time that I like came to Rwanda Ministry, beyond the fact that there was utility in me being there because I was white for them. I spoke French fluently. I spoke English fluently. I knew statistics by that time. I was able to do data work for them. Like, I, you know, like I was able to sit behind a computer and use my skills. And so invest in a set of skills that actually bring value to this field and to this organization, allow you to operate in a meaningful way. What's the single best piece of advice you got from someone related to this work? The best single piece of advice that I got, to be honest, with, it was the encouragement. In the face of the complexity of the magnitude of the conflict, of the magnitude of the refugee crisis, the terror, the hunger, the famine, it can all feel like so much, right? It can all feel like there's nothing that I can do about this. And the most meaningful advice that I got, I think, was something along the lines of you're more powerful than you think you are and you can have an impact, right? Like I actually think a lot of the folks who I know who've left this or you know, find it so challenging are the people who are unable to kind of overcome the overwhelmingness of it, mm -hmm. right? Like in the face of the overwhelmingness, like kind of keep doing it, right? Like I kind of think like like we are on a sinking boat and we all have just like little thimbles and like that's a great thimble. Yeah. <laughs> keep, keep doing it. Let me, let me throw that. What is, when you think about your work and your professional evolution, like what is the best piece of advice that you've gotten? I've gotten a lot of fucking advice. Man, it's much harder when you're on this side of it. Uh, and this is the point in the podcast at which it <laughs> takes this turn. So I think one of the really good pieces of advice, though, that I got was, I'm not sure if this was advice so much as an insight, but it's from Ann Friedman, who is host of the, the wonderful Call Your Girlfriend podcast. Mm -hmm. And Ann and I worked together at the American Prospect. And there is a tendency, I think, when you're young and starting out in a profession to have a idealization of this idea of mentorship. That, you know, somewhere there's going to be the grizzled old editor, the grizzled old writers really going to take you under their wing and show you the ropes. And I knew a lot of people who were really paralyzed by that, actually, huh. that they, they kept waiting for that to happen and being upset when it didn't and kept looking for mentors. And Anne said to me once that I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to remember the quote, but she, she talked a lot about horizontal mentoring. Hmm. That the people you learn from, you learn the most from in a profession are actually your peers. 
That's interesting. And that was like a hugely important insight for me. It had been true for me up until that point too. So, I mean, it was, it was just something putting a name to something I was experiencing already. But I've learned in journalism so much from the people who were alongside me. Yeah. I'd say more than I learned from the people who were above me. And people like Matt Iglesias and Dana Goldstein and uh, I actually shouldn't do this because I'm going to forget <laughs> people who are the people's. Looking for horizontal mentors, looking to learn from your peers, yeah, not just your bosses, was a hugely, hugely important piece of advice for me. That's a really interesting one. And you always always have horizontal mentors. Right. I mean, I mean it's, your peers are really generous with you. I mean, and it's because like the teaching process goes both ways. Yeah. But they're like trying to figure out the same problems you are and they're trying to figure it out in the same era and in the same technological context and for the same audience. I mean, I mean there's a lot of... I think one of the one of the big problems I'll see in young writers sometimes is that they've been too mentored. Oh, and they will end up with a lot of ideas about how to do journalism fifteen years ago. Oh, interesting. So there's some generational gaps in the in the type of knowledge that's provided. Yeah, exactly. By and the kind of yeah, yeah. I mean, the other the other component of that that's like really compelling is like it's deeply empowering because it also makes people remember that they are mentors, right? Like. If you have a set of horizontal mentors, you start thinking of yourself as a mentor towards other people, right? Yeah. Like, I've never thought of myself as a mentor, but it's just like you learn from other people. I mean, that that's mentorship. It's such a weird concept and it's so trapped in, I think, people's cultural ideas of what they wish it were as opposed to what it actually is. I mean, I know people who've really had great mentors, but that mentorship was not a formal process. Yeah. Right. It was often just someone they worked closely with and learned a lot from. Yeah. And when you take it out of this idea of you're going to get your Yoda or your Obi-Wan Kenobi and instead just like put it down to the much more simple frame of learning. Yeah. That you're looking for people to learn from. Yeah. And that nobody's going to teach you everything. Mm -hmm. Right. There's not one guide for you. Yeah. There are people going to teach you a lot of different things. Yep. Absolutely. Um, that I find to be much more helpful. And once you get there and you're like, okay, what can I learn from this person? What do they do really great mm -hmm. at? You know, I mean, for me, this podcast is part of this. This podcast is a way for me to bring in a lot of people whose work I find inspiring or interesting and ask them a lot of questions and maybe take a piece or two of it back into my own work or into my own life. So when you think about on this podcast, all of the interviews you've done and all the things you've learned, like what are like the really big things that you think have changed the way that you either think about the world, approach the world, or live your life differently? The podcast has definitely changed how I talk to people. Through microphones? <laughs> <laughs> so I've learned a lot just about having conversations with people. And also, the it's very interesting the way you can have, in some ways, deeper, more honest conversations in a slightly more formalized setting. It, it opens up a lot to, I mean, this is a conversation you and I have talked a million times, but have not had this conversation before. But things I've, things I've learned or tried to take away, I, w I honestly would have to reflect on that for a while. I was really interested in the interview I did with Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker. Yeah. I was really fascinated by the way his spirituality informs his life. But also, and I, I don't remember if we spoke about this in the podcast. If we didn't, I don't think, it was, I don't think I'm revealing some, some crazy secret here. But I was interested in the way that he was willing to be open about that part of his experience. In ways that like maybe I would have thought a politician wouldn't want to be. Mm -hmm. And his I think his view was that he's done pretty well so far. Right. Being, I think, maybe more vulnerable and more searching than most folks in his position are publicly. And so he was just going to continue with that and that it was going to work out. 
Yeah. And I mean, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Like as I've, you know, advanced in journalism, the amount of myself that I put out there has diminished tr dramatically. And like this podcast is in some ways a, like an effort to be a little bit more honest, at mm -hmm. least in a space that I feel more comfortable being honest in, which is not like fucking Twitter. You know, I did a podcast recently with Jessica Valenti, who had who's written a great book. And I mean, that was another discussion about honesty in writing. Yeah. Um, and she has written a book that I would never have the courage to write about myself. I mean, a, a kind of book. Obviously, that particular book would not make any sense if I wrote about <laughs> myself. But she's written a book that I would never have the courage to write about myself. And trying to think about why she did that and like what parts of that you can take away. I mean, you and I were talking the other night mm -hmm. a little bit about how to be less... I have an interview coming out with someone soon uh, who uh, – I don't know if it will come out um, before or after we do this podcast, but where the, the subject – the, the subject talks a little bit about her belief that the media does a really bad job admitting what it doesn't know. And, you know, we were talking the other night about how do you create space in your in, – in journalism, to, in, in my writing, let me, let me say this from my perspective – to say what I don't know, to say that I'm only 60% confident about this, mm -hmm. right? My voice in this podcast is much more, I think, filled with doubt than it is in my writing. And I don't really like that about my writing. And it's something that like, uh, with the exception maybe of Tanasi Coates, who I think is able to write from a place of doubt really effectively, like that's something that I'm thinking about a lot from this podcast. Well, it's interesting. I think I was saying this to you a little bit, you know, I've known you for years and I feel like listening to your podcast, like... I see a deeper humility and kind of like a deeper, just kind of like awareness around like, oh, maybe I'm wrong. It's a right? huge like, act. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like there are multiple times where you're like, you know, maybe I'm wrong. And like, that's not something that comes out in your writing, right? Like as much, as often as kind of the... When I blogged, I think it did. When I was like a younger blogger, it was okay to come out and, and, and I mean, it's something... Going back to blogging. Yeah. I mean, there's been a, this has been a sub theme of this podcast, like the, the me missing blogging. <laughs> it's come out a lot. Podcast, the new blogs. But, but the reason I, I miss it, the thing that I miss doing is being able to be wrong. Yeah. It isn't to say that I'm not wrong now. I'm wrong all the time, I'm sure. <laughs> I was wrong about a bunch of stuff around Donald Trump, right? Like I, I get things wrong, but... You know, as you, you funnel like upwards in journalism, for one thing, I just feel it's irresponsible to write things where I don't think I know what the fuck I'm talking about. But writing things where I didn't know what the fuck I was talking about was the way I worked out ideas before. Yeah. And it's the way I came to new insights. And it was just okay. Like if I was wrong, I was a college student who cared. Mm -hmm. And I am, you know, now I'm the editor of a publication, right? We have 65 people working at Vox. It doesn't feel like I can go out and just screw around. And somehow podcasting is a space where you're allowed to be a little bit more personal again. Um, but yeah, like so, this is something I'm struggling but, with. But so like what are like when you take a step back and like think about journalism and your work in this, like what are the structural changes that you think could take that could take place? Right. Like how how do you get from where you are in that sector to what are the changes to the sector to get you to the sector that you think it should look like such that it reflects that ability more? I don't know what the changes are. And I'm not sure it is a question of systemic changes. I mean, one thing that's also true is I just write less now. Yeah. And maybe I think when I wrote more, I had time to write things that were a little more conversational, a little more reported. The thing that I used to be good at as a writer, Mark Schmidt, my editor at the American Prospect, told me this. And actually, he writes for Vox now, which is a great joy to me. But he said that the thing that I was good at as a writer was taking people along my own process of learning. Yeah. So I would decide, like, I would get interested in healthcare. And rather than learn all about healthcare reform and then, like, write a big write piece, piece on what I've yeah. learned, like, I would sort of take you along. I would 
transcribe out my interviews and put them on this on the blog and i would like try to answer questions and tell you about the different ways i've seen about or five theories about and and that allowed a space for doubt or at least an honesty about where i was in the process mm-hmm. now i write so much less i don't spend a lot of time like writing in conversation i don't spend a lot of time writing about my own process and the only thing i have time for and i barely have time for that is to like occasionally do what are mostly pretty reactive pieces now about politics. It's not the kind of writing I'm most proud of, for sure. You know, and I, so I think that in terms of my own work, some of it would just be if I write more, I have more, I, I can to... have more kinds of voice in my writing. Mm-hmm. But when I write fairly rarely, and the only times I really do it are it's a primary night, and I'm trying to do like a, I don't want to say definitive, but trying to say like here's what happened. I don't write in context of like a long sustained effort to work through a story. Through right? I'm not a beat reporter anymore. Yeah. Um, and so I just think structurally, like my job does not. Is that what you cultivate then in you, in journalists that are younger than you, or you talk with, or that work at Vox? Right. Yeah. Like, I try to. You, like go through this process. And yeah. Make I try the process to. transparent. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know that we always succeed, but we definitely try to. I mean, I often tell young writers, think about what the book is that you're writing this year. Oh, interesting. Right. Like when you put everything together, what will the book have been? And take people along in that. I mean, I when when people are starting out on a new beat, what I, I often try to advise them to do is to write long stories about technical controversies. Not because I think those stories will get tremendous traffic, mm-hmm. but because you will leave with an under like a base level understanding of the issue. Yeah. They'll make all your future coverage better. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes when people are moving to something, I try to get them to do, you know, big pieces on very narrow, very complex points because in trying to understand that point like you'll get that that deeper knowledge and hell if you're going to do that you might as well write a piece about it yeah but i'm i you you need a structure to do that i mean one of the things that was good for me in terms of my healthcare writing for a long time i did it before healthcare was a big issue and i just spent a lot of time engaged in controversies that were very weird i got really interested in what were the real possibilities of, of administrative savings under single payer? Mm-hmm. And one of my, and I, I did, I did a lot of work on that because you would hear these, you know, things like, oh, like if you move to single payer, you save like 20% on the dollar in yeah. administrative savings. And there's truth to that actually, but it's a little more complex. Like when you really dig into the evidence, it turns out that the problem is having a highly fractured insurance system. Mm-hmm. Very big insurers spend very little on administration. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you are sure, right. a large employer, sense. you know, like who, you know, working with a huge insurer, like you're probably spending a little bit more than Medicare, maybe five or 6%, but not 20 or 30. You're a small business working with a small business insurer on the small business, but like you yeah, might be spending a yeah. ton. And I got really into stuff like that. And it wasn't high traffic. Yeah. But it left me with a real... I think, like a real understanding of the issue so that then when things came up that were that needed that kind of understanding, I was able to supply it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was great. That is a thing that as a writer, which I'm, again, still a little bit, I worry about losing the most. I think like as a writer, I'm kind of running on fumes, right? I'm running on the fumes of what I already know. Huh. One reason I like the podcast so much is that because you're I'm, learning I'm learning new, new things. things. But I still have some time to write, but I don't really have a lot of time to do is report. And so it's the learning of new things, like the developing of new insights. Like I am probably like pretty close to like dropping off a quality <laughs> cliff <laughs> as a writer. Which no I mean, I, if you think yeah, about they, magazines, like a lot of magazines have an editor's note at the beginning. It's like where an editor does their column every month. Right. Uh-huh. Zero of those are good. Yep. 
and I'm sorry at all the editors. It's like the editor spending the time running the magazine. Right. And right. I, I really worry about like my work just be, like, becoming a, a bad editor's note. Yeah. This is a more fundamental issue in like all management, right? Like you are not, you're no longer probably engaging in the content of whatever your work area is. You're managing other people who are doing that exact same thing. And like, this is like, I think right in that um, book, creativity.inc, which was about uh, Pixar. And I remember like, it's a great book. and it's a fantastic book. And there's like this one chapter where I'm, I'm uh, forgetting his name right now, but he basically says, you know, I went from making all of this creative work to managing and that like, essentially there's like a fork in the path and you either realize that you were the person who loves managing and like, that is what you then do for the rest of time. Or you are the person who like actually loves the creative stuff and you leave management as a result of that. And it sounds like, you know, this is the, this is like, I think a fundamental problem across any issue area, right? And like figuring out then how to balance management and still trying to be- become fulfilled, learn, grow on the creative side? I struggle with this question a lot. And the reason I struggle with it is that there are a lot of times when I think I'd probably be a better manager if I just like cut the writing entirely or like cut the podcasting. Into it. Like, why am I spending four hours a week podcasting? Nobody's ever going to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then the reason I don't do it is that I think different people manage in different ways. And my part of my role as a manager is to have ideas about how we should cover things and ideas about where the media is going and ideas about like a point of view. Yeah. And there's a lot of really interesting research on a manufacturing that when you split the R&D from the actual manufacturing of stuff, you lose a lot of innovation because a lot of the innovation comes from like making People things and then the seeing like, oh, like, here's a problem yeah. where we're making things. How could we solve that problem? And I feel that way a lot as a manager when I'm still writing, when I'm still using the underlying product, when I'm podcasting and trying to understand this media, when I'm making Facebook videos, that it's doing these things and testing out ideas like with the, the, the more rapid iteration process that I can have on my own work that I get ideas about what to do next. Yeah, And, you know, I think I will be able to architect a better podcast strategy for Vox.com as a whole. Mm -hmm. And we will have more podcasts coming out soon, which I'm excited about, because I've been doing these myself. And I think if I totally left that, I would lose a lot of my ability to come up with new ideas. Because I don't think I come up with new ideas really well by sitting in meetings. I mean, which I need to do, like, that's part of my job. Mm -hmm. I think that at least in terms of how we do the work, I come up with a lot of these ideas by doing the work. I mean, sometimes by editing the work, sometimes by working with other people, but but some of it, like if my hands aren't on it, but I recognize that at some level that doesn't scale endlessly, right? If we became an organization the size of the Washington Post or the New York Times, like mm-hmm. I don't know when the off ramp is or how to build an organization that like creates that. Like, so th- there's a lot, I, I really struggle on this question. I don't. <laughs> It, it makes me very anxious to think about <laughs> I can see you getting more anxious. Yeah, right. I'm like, my, my, my um, that's a good segue, though, into books. Ooh. What are, what are three books you would recommend to the audience? Three books I'd recommend to the audience. So the book that got me into this, and I, and I haven't read it in years and probably need to, as I was mentioning earlier, is Philip Gurevich's uh, We Wish to Inform You That Tomorrow We Will Be Killed With Our Family. It's just a magisterial portrait that's very accessible about the Rwandan genocide. And for anybody who's just like looking to understand a conflict and the depth and terror and tragedy and dynamics of it, I think that's one of the best portraits of it out there. I think one of the books that I thought really captures a complexity of characters and a complexity of these issues actually is... um, 
Catherine Boo's Behind the Beautiful Forever. That it, book is fucking unbelievable. It's uh, one of, I think, like, everybody should go buy that immediately. Yeah. It is... Um, Every journalist who want, who reads that book, like, wants to kill themselves after. <laughs> <laughs> it was that it's best a, book ever. It was all... Such like, a quality, like, I will book. never be that good. <laughs> the, I mean, the writing is beautiful, but she is able to capture poverty in an Indian slum and the dy- family dynamics and the community dynamics and the political dynamics with such depth and compassion and nuance that it's incredible like highly yeah i I really want to say if you are listening to this podcast and you have not read that book stop listening to this podcast and go read that (laughs) book like it is better (laughs) um i think like another great book that has uh been uh, written recently that actually I think you know is also one of the things that keeps me optimistic is that uh, Steve Pinker's um, book on kind of the decline of uh, violence over the like arc of humanity. The book's title is slipping my the name. Better angels, the better of angels, angels, nature, the better angels of nature. Like that's exactly right. Um, and it just does like a really epic and interesting job of actually tracking how things get better with respect to violence and how norms change. And there's some arguments that I kind of disagree with in there. And I think the empirics are a little shaky and there's some really interesting debates to check out. But it like it is a excellent book that I think does a really compelling job of kind of tracking. That book has been recommended to me a lot and I haven't read it. I think I think Bill Gates recommended it on this podcast too. It's a fantastic Um, book. It's absolutely worth reading. And you know, I will say I think like going back to Do you think do you are you confident that the trend identified in that book will continue? No. <laughs> so the 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 kind of core issue, the kind of core debate that comes out of this is kind of T. Peaker makes the argument that violence is declining. And if you basically look at it, about every 100 years, there are these massive wars. So in the past kind of 100 years, what we've seen was World War II, which was on an order of magnitudes more violent than others. I think 70 million people died, right? In the 125 interstate wars since then, about 3 million people have died. And that's also because there are more civil wars. Um, and so the nature of conflict is changing. But um, the kind of most compelling argument against it, right, is that Actually, maybe kind of the nature of violence is that there are these kind of hundred year kind of lulls and then a huge conflict. And that's actually what's reflected in the data. But since World War II, we haven't seen that. And so, like, I think um, there's a great kind of scholar who works on kind of predicting conflicts, Jay Ulfilder, and he used like a really apt analogy where he's like, it's kind of seeing like a kicker on a soccer team, like start missing all the goals. And like, you don't know if like he's just missing goals for right now. It's, he's going to get his magic back or if he's lost it. Uh-huh. Right. And it's like just a little too early to tell. So I think like the most compelling argument around the most compelling counter argument around this is that in the next 30, 40 years, we will see a huge conflict like like that. And that would actually be in line with the structure of the data that we see mm-hmm. and kind of disprove Pinker's argument to an extent. But still a fantastic book, absolutely <laughs> worth reading. And like, I hope he's right. <laughs> we all we all hope it grows right. If people want to follow you online, where they can where can they find you? So you can find some of the research that I've done as well as some of the policy work I've done at grantmgordon.com. And I tweet from time to time. Oh, you tweet. I tweet, particularly if you're interested in Central African politics or kind of new research on conflict. Actually, Twitter's a great place to get new research. That is um, true. I, I have a Twitter. good list of political scientists. Um, what is your and, Twitter name? Uh, my Twitter handle is at Grant M. Gordon. Um, Grant so M. Gordon. Come follow me and uh, we'll hang out in the Twitter sphere. All right, Grant Gordon. Thank All you right, very much. Thanks so much. This was lovely.
That was Grant Gordon. Thank you to him for taking the time. Thank you to all of you for spending the time with us. To my producer, AC Valdez, the show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.